I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Richard Lloyd Parry, the Asia editor of The Times and a contributor to the LRB. And today I'm talking to you from Seoul in South Korea, where my guest is the novelist Chris Lee. Chris is a professor at Yonsei University in Seoul and also the prize-winning Korean-American author of two remarkable books, Drifting House, a collection of short stories, and published more recently her first novel, How I Became a North Korean. She writes about North Korea, South Korea and the United States and the characters who live in the marginal liminal spaces between those three. And today we're going to certainly talk about her work, but also more generally about the remarkable current situation in the Korean Peninsula. Chris, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, there's a lot to talk about, but let's start by talking about this crisis and how it's being felt here. I mean, you were born in South Korea before becoming an American. I've been reporting on Korea for 22 years. And in that time, in the manner of a, of a rather jaded hack, I suppose I've become a bit blasé about North Korea security crises over the years. I mean, I've lived through a lot of them, and there have been a number. And I'm very used to this, this pattern where, you know, as a, as a news reporter for a daily paper, I get a call from an editor in London, who's in a terrible panic because something alarming has happened in Korea. There's some incident on the border or uh, blood-curdling threats from the North Korean state media. And they want to know, you know, what's happening? Is it going to be a war? It seems terribly dangerous. And uh, over the years, I, I've found it's, it's been my job to to tell people, look, don't worry, calm down. The situation is always rather tense here. But it's probably not going to be a war this time. The, the border between North and South Korea is a, a, an extraordinary place, densely militarised with huge armies on both sides. But since 1953, when the Korean War ended, a kind of terrible stability has established itself that there are reasons why war has not revived in 64 years. And that has always tended to be my my diagnosis. And one of the reasons why it's easy to think that is that when you come to Seoul, people here are, are so calm. Um, and it's it seems to be people outside the country who, who tend to get more excited. Now, having said all that, in the last, I would say, eight months, uh, the situation seems to have changed qualitatively the tension is a lot raw. The chances of an actual war breaking out feel to me higher than they have ever been in my experience. You live here in Seoul. How does it feel to you? You know, similar to what you said, I mean, I've lived here for over 15 years. And uh, in my time here, you know, there's always moments when people from overseas have reached out saying, you need to get out now. I'm worried for you whenever an incident has broken out on the peninsula. And I've always reassured them saying things are calmer here than uh, it sounds or the, the media has made it look uh, more drastic than it sounds or there's a tense moment, but it's not going to lead to war. This year has felt different um, and certainly in the last few months or the last six months, really, I have found myself wondering if I need a plan B or wondering and worrying about the my loved ones and if we need to get out, how 
Will that happen? Should I leave the country? But this is my country at this point. Um, but really considering uh, um, the consequences in a way that I never have before. It's very hard imaginatively, isn't it? Because Seoul is this vast, um, very prosperous, very dynamic, and very peaceful city. And yet, if there was a peninsula-wide war, which I think any conflict would probably escalate into very fast, it would be, I think, the worst thing that has ever happened in our lifetimes. Very quickly, chemical, biological and conventional weapons, as well as nuclear weapons, would be in play in this small, densely populated country. There could be hundreds of thousands, even millions dead, and the substantial destruction of one of the biggest and richest cities in the world. I mean, how how do people live with that? Are, are people changing their behaviour? Because there's no sign, there are none of the things one would expect to see pre-crisis. There's been no panic buying. The financial market seems stable. What are people doing or are they just thinking about it at the moment? I may be a good indication of what many people are feeling and thinking at a certain age, meaning that I am weighing both my options but also weighing the chances of something happening. And though people are much more nervous than they were a year or two years ago, and the news coverage, um, even the tenor of the news coverage in the Korean news has changed as well that register this, um, people are still have a modicum of faith that the balance, the fragile balance of powers that has kept um, South Korea relatively peaceful uh, since the uh, ceasefire will continue. And that, and we see that now with China and Russia stepping in and urging. Uh, the American government for a certain amount of calm and dialogue in their approach to North Korea. This is the great irony because in South Korea news already in the last few months, uh, both in the, the media as well as citizens have remarked very frankly that they are less worried about North Korea than they are about what America will do with a potential preemptive strike. I think that's right. I think the the story of this crisis really lies in Washington. You know, Kim Jong-un, one doesn't seek to defend him, but he has the virtue, I think, of being consistent. It's clear what he's trying to achieve, which is the you know full nuclear capacity, the ability to attack the United States, and he's going about it in, in a systematic way. The, the utterances from, from Washington are less consistent and, and more uh, much more difficult to to draw a thread out of. I think we'll come back to this later. But before we do that, and to put all this in context, I wanted you to talk about your story. Your your novel and your stories are, among other things, are about the complexities of identity. So tell us about your own life and your own identity. I mean, I described you as a Korean American. Is that right? What What are you? I ask myself this occasionally <laughs> as well. Um, I, 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 was, I was born in South Korea and then went to America after my parents immigrated on the West Coast. Um, we moved every three years. So, How old were you when you left Korea? Uh, we left when I was three or four, depending on the story my parents uh, told me at the moment, that age is a very flexible thing because our age system is different in South Korea than the rest of the world were considered um, of an age while we're in the mother's womb as well, too. So um, at three or four, I immigrated following my father who'd already arrived in uh, um, America. Um, he was at Notre Dame at that time. And then we moved uh, every few years up and down the West Coast. And then um, a few years into university, I went. To, I transferred. Um, I finished my university years in the UK at the University of York. 
Um, and from there on, I thought I was going to stay in England or maybe would return to the U.S., but a visit to South Korea turned into a stay at the age of 22, and I've been here since. So you're actually a Korean-American Yorkshire woman. Uh, possibly. <laughs> but this idea of Koreanness uh, is something that is uh, a question mark for many people today because the Korean diaspora is starting to resemble the Chinese diaspora in that there are Koreans who have, like me, grown up in between countries, gone to, gone abroad, and then returned as a, an adult. There are also Koreans who spent over half their lives overseas and then return as retirees to South Korea, but changed depending on where they are. We have Chilean Koreans, Argentinian Koreans, who some are returning and others are, are leaving or staying. And certainly, uh, the, uh, we can't forget the Chinese Koreans, Koreans who are born or um, are of several generations of Koreans that live at the border area of China. The Koreans living in Japan, they don't, many of them don't, most of them don't speak Korean. They've lived there for several generations and have sometimes distinct schools or some have assimilated um, into the society. And then, of course, North Koreans who, some who have crossed into South Korea and even others who have left South Korea once again and uh, gone to Canada or the UK or America trying to find this elusive life where they can create a sense of belonging and home. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think this has been a feature of the coverage of this crisis. Korea is presented as a very, as somewhere very polarised, both geographically and morally as well. So you have the South Koreans, who are the goodies, and the North Koreans, who are the baddies. And that's it. It's like the cowboys and the Indians. But of course, and also like the real cowboys and Indians, it's a lot more complicated than that. And Koreanness is a very fluid thing, which, as you've suggested, is, is leaking out all over the place, isn't it? Oh, yes. And, you know, North Korean scholars like B.R. Myers has frequently pointed out that uh, much of the... Uh, uh, ideology or beliefs that um, are seen as uniquely North Korean are often values that were traditionally shared with South Koreans. Um, and, and there, and a North Korean that I know once remarked very, uh, you know, in a very upset tone to me that so many people seem to assume that he is of this alien culture it, when he arrived in South Korea and he is an other of another place, another culture and, and other ideas. And he said, we eat the same food. We, we call each other the same names and titles. And we, you know, we, we share much of the same culture because we were of one country. And, uh, and I'm, no, I'm no different than people here was, uh, uh, was what he believed. Also, and I think this is a, a point that Brian Myers also makes the, the forms of the North Korean leadership cult, uh, it, it seems to many people to be such a, a unique, singular, alien uh, cult. But actually, it has its its roots in, um, among others, in, in old ideas of Korean kingship, doesn't it? And, and, and powerful men as leaders. Certainly. Um, uh, the hierarchy of uh, South Korean culture is probably the thing that feels most familiar to North Koreans when they arrive. They're used to a certain form of hierarchy. Um, and uh, both countries have it in very different ways, different forms. Um, South Korea has changed dramatically, of course, uh, with the opening up of the country in the 80s. Um, but uh, older ideas of South Korea aren't so far behind. Yeah, talk about that a bit more. Well, I'm certainly not an expert, but much of the uh, the way the government is structured uh, with uh, the uh, North Korean leader as a kind of godly figure, um, someone who is able to do supernatural things. There are many myths and supernatural uh, feats that are uh, attributed to the Kim family from Kim Il-sung, uh, Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un. And each generation creates new myths to create a separation from the people and its leaders that have otherworldly powers. That is very much... Um, uh, 
dating back to Christian beliefs and what um, I would say the the uh, Kim Il-sung learned uh, from his uh, f- from the Bible, um, as well uh, the songs, many of their songs as well are are like hymns, um, and a few of them actually borrow harmonies from Christian hymns. Right, and of course Kim Il-sung and, and Kim Jong-il in the uh, official. Uh, propaganda were close to being miracle makers, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. And Kim Jong-il, I think I'm right, was born in something a bit like a stable under a star. Isn't that right? On on Mount Paktu, of course, not yes. in, in Bethlehem. Which, of course, is there is a legendary mountain within, you know, the uh, traditional Korean stories as well. I mean, the, other, the other influence which uh, Koreans on all sides, are very reluctant to acknowledge sometimes is imperial Japan. Uh, I mean, the the cult of the Kims is similar in some ways to the pre-war cult of the emperor. And, uh, you know, coming from from Japan, I live in Tokyo, you, um, you, you know, you do notice in, in odd ways um, things in, in Korean culture which, which have a, a Japanese look to them, even the department stores, some, the way the game shows are, are, are presented. And I mean, that's no surprise given the, uh, you know, the decades that Korea was under the Japanese imperial boot. But it's another, it's another illustration of the, I suppose, the hybrid nature of North Korea and the, the fact that it, it hasn't just um, dropped from outer space, but emerged from, from history like everything else, like all of us. Yes, and that's interesting, especially considering its own myth-making um, of of being a completely ideologically pure and independent nation. Of course, the other myth that North Korea propagates about itself is that it is a, a, a totally egalitarian, classless society. Um, now, the, 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 the complexities of that question come out in your novel, How I Became a North Korean, because two of the the three central characters are North Koreans who leave North Korea for different reasons. And they come from very different backgrounds, don't they? One is a member of the elite, the young man, uh, Yong Ju, and Jang Mi, the young woman, comes from the, the bottom end of society. Tell us a bit about North Korean society and, and how it's structured. You know, North Korea is structured on a very strict hierarchy of bloodlines and uh, um, who is both more loyal uh, to the government historically really determines where you get to start in that society. If your family has any historical ties to South Korea dating from pre-war, or if you had uh, any people who defected early in your family, if any of those lines of potential traitorship, or if you have Japanese blood in your family and you were of the Japanese Koreans who left Japan believing that they were returning to their homeland or to their um, to the country of uh, of their blood uh, to North Korea, um, then you're always uh, you were always never going to be completely accepted, or you were going to be immediately relegated to some of the lowest classes in that society. Many of them would discover once they wanted to go to school that they weren't allowed to have dreams. Their dreams didn't mean anything because their bloodline determined everything about their life. This is still happening today on a different level, of course, in that if you have people in your family that have betrayed the government or ended up in the camps or done something that uh, puts you in any position of suspicion. Oh, and today, of course, if you have a a family member that's defected, then your entire extended range of family members down all the way down to your distant cousins um, will find both their opportunities and maybe even their lives in jeopardy, depending on who you are. Well, let's talk about defectors or, or refugees, as they're sometimes called these days. The Quite recently, there was a remarkable case of a young North Korean soldier who escaped to South Korea in the most dramatic fashion. He ran across the border between the two countries at the only the single spot where it is open and unfenced. Uh, he did so under fire. He was struck by five bullets. He was pulled to safety and his life was barely saved by South Korean surgeons. 
Now, I think a lot of people, when they, they think of defectors, and, and this goes back to memories of, for example, East and West Germany during the Cold War, that's how they think of, of defection, uh, of an individual taking a huge physical risk and sprinting to safety at a stroke. But it's not usually like that, is it? Yes, I mean, his defection was extremely unusual because crossing the, the most militarized zone, uh, one of the most militarized zones in the world, the 38th parallel, that line, is a form of insanity. And it's a, it's a miracle that he survived. Um, but uh, in most cases, um, North Koreans have crossed into the Chinese border because the direct passage into the, uh, into South Korea through that border is impossible since it's so guarded and militarized. Um, and at the border area between China and North Korea, it's been very porous traditionally. There was, there's been trade both official and unofficial. I mean, there are bridges where official trade is happening and that's where China is getting, uh, it's meant much of its natural resources, uh, from North Korean mines or, and, uh, much of what North Korea needs, like petrol is, is crossing, uh, these official bridges. But the unofficial trade that happens, um, across the water, it's something I actually witnessed at the border area where you see people like throwing tires and floating, um, creating their own makeshift barges as they are sending uh, things that are needed um, between China, Chinese and Korean partners is happening too. And so that uh, they have relatives as well. Many of them have relatives that have crossed earlier on in history. And so many of the North Korean people have relatives that live at the border in China too. And so it's much more porous than we actually can imagine it. What's happened now is that border has become more distinct because of the crackdowns. Um, when, after all the, after so many North Koreans crossed during the famine in the 90s, many Chinese authorities turned a blind eye at first because this was clearly a human rights crisis. There were people starving and there were people, relatives helping other relatives, people who knew each other helping others. Um, but uh, over time, of course, very, very, very quickly, that border uh, was seen as uh, a problem both for China and for North Korea. For North Korea, it's become a problem again, information leaving for a, a disgrace to their country that people don't want to stay. And for China, this is turning into a potential flood of refugees that will destabilize their border region and their historical claims to that land as well. Um, this crossing uh, happens often with brokers. Uh, people paid money to smuggle um, others out of the uh, North Koreans out of the country. And we call this now the underground, uh, in a sense, the Asian Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. There are safe houses all across the border where people are uh, hidden. And uh, some of these places can be completely ramshackle, abandoned properties. Others are safe houses um, within cities, embedded in cities, um, where people sometimes don't step out for years um, uh, out of fear of being uh, reported. And I think it's also worth spelling out to people who may not know that the the Chinese province immediately over the border is predominantly ethnic Korean, isn't it? These are Chinese citizens of, of Korean ethnicity. And the border itself, uh, which between North and South Korea in the, in the south part, is barbed wire and landmines, is essentially a, um, a, a sort of rather slack river, often frozen in the winter and just a trickle in the summer. Yes, certain certain parts are quite narrow too and shallow um, during those periods. Um, but some, you know, they, some people use uh, brokers, but others have just crossed, um, you know, in desperation and occasionally when they make bad judgments have died trying to make that crossing at when the river river water is high, for example, or when the guards are out and they get caught because there are guards all across that border. And others have been kidnapped, women who have been lied to and told uh, they are uh, crossing for jobs and find out they are actually being sold into prostitution in, uh, and are trafficked. So these are people who have, have no recourse because they're, they're fleeing a, a, a repressive regime which if it caught them trying to escape would punish them. They're in a, a new country, China, which doesn't recognise their rights as refugees 
and will send them back if it catches them. So, uh, and they have not yet got anywhere safe. They haven't yet got to South Korea. So they're vulnerable on all fronts. Oh, absolutely. And to meet a North Korean at the border is a very different experience from meeting a North Korean in South Korea. The fear is physical, it's visible, it's palpable. Um, most recently, um, you know, a family of five had uh, killed themselves when they were caught at at, at a border, I, I think, I believe it's outside of, uh, through Southeast Asia, that gives you a sense of the desperation and the fear of what might happen to them when they are sent back. Well, I want to talk more about, about North Koreans and about the humanity of North Koreans, which should be something obvious, but I think is something which is really lost, overlooked, even suppressed in much of the coverage of that country and certainly of the recent crisis. There's an observation that's, that's often made. It's, it's almost become a cliche now. But if you look at a, a nighttime satellite map of, of the world or of East Asia, then, of course, what it shows is electric lights burning in the megacities which have sprung up all across this densely populated part of the world. You have the Chinese cities the Japanese cities, the South Korean cities, and then there's, there's a gap. It almost looks like Black Sea, and that's North Korea. And it's because the electricity supply is so unreliable. And this is often, in a lot of commentary on North Korea, this is made to represent more than simply the failure of the electricity grid, which is what it is, but also a moral darkness and a kind of absence of humanity as much as an absence of, of light. And it's remarkable how, you know, otherwise uh, very um, astute people say some very stupid things about, about North Korea. I mean, Martin Amos, who's a writer I admire in many ways, described North Korea as a zombie nation. I don't think he's ever been there. Christopher Hitchens, another you know, esteemed writer, did go there. Um, and he described North Koreans as, as racist dwarves. That was the best he could do. Uh, and the the humanity of North Koreans is is completely overlooked, but it is the subject of your of your work to a great extent. You're one of the few writers who has taken it on as a subject. Necessarily, your encounters with North Koreans have been with defectors because you can't go to North Korea yourself. Tell us about North Korean defectors and what you learned from them and some of the lessons they teach. Well, I, the reason why I ended up writing how I became a North Korean was that at that time, South Korean writers were starting to write fiction about North Koreans. And I read a book that made me so angry. I, I felt like I first had to do something and I couldn't even finish the book. In this novel, a North Korean woman, a young woman, um, is fleeing her country with her family and she ends up escaping, but they get caught as she is, uh, as they are leaving, uh, China. But then very soon after, she, she seems to barely register the loss of her family. And that she seemed to have no problem with before, and she starts dreaming about becoming a singer. And I was appalled because I, uh, I have known North Koreans for a long time with the ones who have escaped and settled uh, in South Korea. And what I've learned over time of being both their friend, their mentor, someone who they call sister, is that some of them are survivors, they're tough, they're suspicious, they're angry. There are others that are funny and bright-eyed and hardworking. Still others who are artists and, you know, someone I know who's become a ceramic artist and started a new life in South Korea uh, with nothing and somehow created, you know, was very brave and continued to create opportunities for himself and dream others who are still afraid and traumatized by what they, they've experienced and have nightmares every night. There's a huge range of their experiences that they've left behind, who they become over their time here, how they react to their new lives. And so this idea of them being zombies is based on believing in the theater that North Korea presents for uh, people who visit the country. 
you're uh, you are controlled and you're only allowed to see what the government allows you to see. And people are not going to come up to you and tell you their stories. They are afraid of you because if they say something wrong, they will get in an enormous amount of trouble. And we already objectify Asians from a Western perspective quite often, whether it's in media or in, you know all the popular art forms, uh, because they Asians look visually so different, their language, their culture is so different, and from the Chinese and Japanese scares that happened in America and in Europe, based on these rising Asian powers, this story is not actually a new one. It's just focused on North Korea, a country that is their propaganda machine even feeds these notions of what North Koreans are like. This takes us to the idea which comes up a lot in talk of North Korea, brainwashing, this idea that North Koreans are brainwashed. Uh, there's a very remarkable section in Barbara Demick's book, Nothing to Envy, which is a very important book about the humanity of North Koreans, where she's uh, she's, she's talking to a uh, a young man who used to be a student at Kim Il-sung University, the best university in the country. And he was a student there when the authorities announced the death of Kim Il-sung, the founding leader. Uh, and this was a moment where, where all North Koreans were immediately stricken with paroxysms of grief. Uh, and there is there is footage of that, that remarkable sight. It was repeated to some extent when, when uh, Kim Jong-il died in 2011. And this young man was there standing, you know, with his classmates as they were all collapsing on the ground, wailing and, and weeping. And he found that he, he wasn't sad. He felt no emotion at all. He didn't care about Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung. He didn't respect him. But he also realised that his, his future career, his welfare, possibly his life, depended on the ability to start crying in the next few minutes. And luckily, he realised that if he held his eyes open and didn't close them, then naturally they would begin to water and tears would come to his eyes and he was able to put it on a, a simulation of, of grief. Um, and that, I think, you know, tells you a lot about how difficult it is to, to judge this, this question of brainwashing. Many North Koreans did feel a genuine grief when uh, Kim Il-sung passed away because in some ways, from the, their point of view, he kept the country together. They, it, he also represented better times for their country when their economy was stronger, uh, when they looked like they had a future. Uh, but this is also a country that was kept cloistered and where information until recently was very much kept out. But even then, um, as you mentioned, even with a leader that many had great respect for, uh, you had people who had to feign uh, a kind of grief. With Kim Jong-il, that was even greater. Uh, a lot more feigning was happening. And uh, as she said, some people genuinely believed and others like anywhere else in the world, you have people who believe and people who don't. The only difference here is when they are brought together in their great morning parties, everyone is in some kind of a committee. You are in groups and those groups watch each other. And if someone in that group is not showing the kind of grief that you're that is appropriate for that occasion, you are going to be reported on. I think the greatest um, a literary example, and I always think of this book when I think of North Korea, is 1984 by George Orwell. One of the, the, the great ironies and subtleties of your novel, How I Became a North Korean, comes when the two North Korean characters escape from the country and find themselves in China, in the Korean province, in this marginal zone, very vulnerable. And they become, in some ways, beneficiaries of, but also victims of a different kind of a brainwashing, that of evangelical Christianity. Tell us about that and how that, how Christianity works for people leaving the North Korean regime. The missionary culture, as well as the Christian uh, communities in general, uh, uh, from South Korea to America primarily, but also in Europe, Norway, are um, composed much of the human rights activism uh, for North Korea today. So um, 
that in both its good and bad forms. Uh, over 95% of the activists often have Christian roots, and they're surprised uh, within the community when someone who's non-Christian um, is part of that. That's happening more and more um, in the West, certainly, but uh, that tends to be uh, your um, your really strong activist community. They are Christian. To, to work at the border, especially today, means for many to risk your life. And so a kind of strong belief often drives these people. Um, they are out to save souls. And, uh, and they're willing to risk their life to do that. So I res, you know, one has to respect that kind of, I suppose, in a sense, um, fearlessness. So, so you have, you have missionaries, uh, a lot of them coming from, from South Korea, who come into the border area and do very difficult and dangerous work helping North Koreans to, to get out, to get across, and then often helping them to get from China to, third countries and, and to South Korea where they can start a new life. They're, they're not doing that simply uh, for purposes of humanitarian rescue. That They're doing it as part of a religious mission, and the religious mission brings with it, to their minds, a an obligation to proselytize, right, which doesn't always work to the advantage of those they're helping. The religious mission for many is the primary mission, and uh, many of these missionaries do come from South Korea, but they also come from America as well. And you have separately funded organizations whose primary goal is not necessarily to save people's lives, but actually to convert their souls and bring them to God. Uh, so the souls come first, the lives come second. Oh, yes. And uh, I've seen uh, uh, dialogues between uh pastors in Korea, for example, who have very different beliefs. But the minority tend to be the ones who are more interested in immediate safety and uh, um, support for the practical necessities of North Koreans rather than their souls. Now, I know you, from conversations with you, you've had very difficult personal experiences with, with these people, uh, which forms the basis of one of the plot strands in your novel. Tell us about that. I, well, I grew up in a Christian family. My father was a pastor, and even though I left the church, um, I I still had a residual belief that pe the, the people in the uh, North Korean activist community who are Christians were doing something to help other people. And what I found was like the kind of hypocrisy that I grew up with in the Christian church when I was young is that all organizations also come with a power structure. And so... Um, uh, for the missionaries, for example, some of them are are really there to help people, but many of them are also there because the more souls they save, the more prestigious becomes their mission, and their own reputation rises as a result. So when I was working with um, a couple of missionaries at the border area, some are also based in China, they're Chinese Koreans. And you have money involved, you have prestige involved, you have uh, your uh, funding coming in if you are able to convert more people. So you're creating a very complex situation where, pe where people might come into um, activist missionary work for the wrong reasons as well, especially when it's as dangerous as it is. Um, so, uh, so what happened to you and the, the man you we're dealing with? Eventually, um, things, uh, came, we set up a safe house together and uh, I was the person from the outside. He was the one that was running it on a daily level. Um, and what I found was, as I became closer to the North Koreans that I was meeting at the border, one of them fell on his knees when we were left alone, the rare moment when we were left alone, and begged me, saying, this man is crazy. He wants to to send me back to North Korea converted, you have to help me out of this country or else I will walk out on my own and get out somehow. And so I try to do things uh, the more uh, diplomatic way. I try to have talk to the, the missionary and try to find a way to compromise and to keep his mission intact and still help this man out because my goal was to get people out as soon as uh, I could. And 
over an all-night argument, I realized we had very different goals. And so as a result, I decided to make my move. And I, when I went back to South Korea, I got support. I found a broker, a uh, human smuggler, to get uh, this North Korean man out. And in the meantime, the missionary had made his own moves. And he had moved the man into another safe house without informing me. But then the man contacted me um, on a payphone very quickly and then had to get off. But I, uh, I, I had a base from where he was. I knew where he'd been moved. And we got him out. After that, there was death threat issued against me by this missionary and the people he was working with. I got calls from the border. Later, I started getting calls from South Korea. And then I went to America, had my phone off, you know, got rid of that number, stayed low for a while, and things calmed down. The irony is a year later, the man who had been screaming at the phone at me, saying things that I never imagined, because uh, even the North Korean I got out became very afraid for me. He was very worried for me. A year later, the man who... Um, I, I had been working with was dead because he got caught by the Chinese uh, police and he was tortured. But he, uh, he had had a, mass, a major surgery because he had health problems. They hadn't realized it and they pushed him over the edge, basically, and he died. That's an extraordinary story. So he, you were trying to get people through China into South Korea. He wanted to keep them in China because he could use their presence to as, as as a way of drawing donations from from church followers. Absolutely, the more people you are keeping safe, the more donations uh, um, you are going to get. And originally, he wasn't going to keep them forever. That's what he was trying to reassure me is that he wanted to hold on to them longer. But the point is that every month that passes, that person is in more danger. Let's talk about the next stage. After people come out of China and make it to South Korea, then they go through what you might almost call a third kind of brainwashing when they're integrated to some extent with South Korean society. So the first thing that happens if you're a defector is that you're scrutinized and debriefed by the intelligence services to find out if you have any useful information and also to make sure that you're, you are really what you say you are and you're not uh, a North Korean infiltrator and there have been examples of those. But then people are sent for several months to a remarkable place called Hanawon, which is a, a kind of, um, I don't know what to call it really, it's a sort of college or, or a uh, social security center where North Korean defectors are instructed in the ways of South Korea and of capitalism. And they're taught how money works, how banks, credit cards work, how South Korean society functions, and how to fit in in this drastically uh, different place from the one they've come from. Well, naturally, you know, you're speaking about a people who often, if they made it to Thailand from, uh, if they got out of North Korea, then through China, and eventually made it to a resettlement center in Thailand, a, a defection center, they're often held up for over a year. Uh, they, they, if they, sometimes they end up having to spend jail time in Thailand for having crossed the border illegally. They finally get to South Korea, then they go through Intel, and then they go through Hanawon, the resettlement center. By then, they're exhausted, and they're wondering, will they ever see freedom? So they are given an enormous amount of information when they're there, um, trying to help them. And that the, that program has become better over time, and they have more North Korean defectors who've uh, stayed in Korea for South Korea for some time now coming and really trying to give them more practical advice, give them ex their own life stories of what happened after they resettled. And that's helped a little bit, but it's a flood of information. And it's also more months of them waiting for their life to begin again. For many of them, they become, you know, it sounds like more uh, brainwashing. And some of them are going to be receptive and try to learn. And others of them are going to feel like, oh, we've heard this before, just from a different government. 
Um, so it's a it's a, it's a South Korea's best attempt at trying to help these people uh, understand the new society when they enter. And they are doing more visits to like real places and factories and kind of tours as part of that period. But from, from the North Korean perspective, it's often just more time waiting and more information uh, and sometimes more propaganda. And after that, uh, people are given uh, – there's a financial settlement of, of sorts. People are given money to, to establish a new life. The sad thing is that, that a lot of people, a large proportion of North Korean defectors don't flourish in South Korea, do they? A lot of them fall flat on their faces. If we look at the world and any immigrant story, it's easy to see that becoming – to be an immigrant – um, in any new culture and society is incredibly difficult. For the North Koreans, it's that much more so when you come from a country with very little information, um, a very different education system than almost anywhere in the world, where history has been literally rewritten for you in your schools. And then you come to a society that is uh, a, a democracy, one of the great capitalist epicenters of the world today, uh, where half the signs are written in English. Um, and the Korean language has even changed because of its exposure to English, to Japanese, to German. They don't even know what they're being confronted with at this point. On top of that, they're faced with, with an enormous amount of suspicion and discrimination. Uh, it's changing slowly, but South Koreans, for decades, the schooling was that a North Korean is a potential spy and an enemy. And that's what they're, they're facing. There's still signs today. If you're in uh, the province of Gangwon-do, the, the northeast region of South Korea, in that province, there are signs even in the bathroom stalls saying, if you see suspicious behavior, you see a spy, report it. So any North Korean ends up becoming a potential spy for many of the older generation. On The discrimination also happens because South Korea is an incredibly stratified society. Uh, money means a great deal here and education and connections. North Koreans who come have lost, if they've ever had any, they lost all their connections. They, ha they have no money when they arrive here. And their education, if they, ha you know, some who come as nurses or doctors or even a pianist, suddenly find that their degree means nothing in this country. And others who come from the provinces or re regions where they didn't have a strong education or couldn't have it because they were struggling to, to feed and survive, um, to eat and survive, uh, find that they are absolutely Val unvalued in this society. And the fact that any North Koreans managed to succeed here is a testament to how strong-willed they are, how hard they're working, and what they have to do to survive here. Yeah, and of course, another thing that puts North Koreans at a disadvantage is the value that South Korean society puts on um, physical good health and, and beauty, uh, I mean, this is a society, I think, with one of the highest levels of cosmetic surgery in the world. Everyone looks fantastic, wears beautiful clothes and has glowing skin and shiny hair. Um, North Koreans who grew up during the late 1990s, during the period of the famine, are, are physically stunted. I mean, comparisons have, have been done, you know, between uh, South Koreans and North Koreans of, of that generation. Um, the difference in in height is a matter of six inches or more, uh, certainly, you know, among um, among children. Uh, and North Koreans, I think you were saying that a lot of them have terrible problems with their with their teeth because of the the, the food that the rice has has stones in it that breaks people's teeth. Yes, and they just don't. Um, it's both the food, the lack of nutrition for many of them, um, the uh, the lack of dental care, um, especially for refugees who've spent an extended period in China, sometimes in hiding, or um, have come across it from poor regions of North Korea. They have terrible teeth problems, gum problems, and it takes years of proper treatment in South Korea for them to ever recover a, a degree of comfort. But there's also, um, as you mentioned, Richard, the, the emphasis on appearance here. 
on beauty and health, that has influenced North Koreans. And one of the highest rates of plastic surgery within the South Korean population today are North Korean women. It's one of the first things they save up their money for. And when they do, um, when they get plastic surgery, often it tends to be very zealous because not actually, not all South Koreans do get plastic surgery. I mean, you can see a lot of eye surgery, which is almost not considered surgery at this point anymore. But the more invasive forms of surgery tends to attract a certain population. Whereas with the North Korean women um, who have settled here, escaped and settled here, they tend to be much more thorough in what they're willing to commit to. And part of it is this anxiety of having to compete with South Koreans at such a great disadvantage. So that's the the physical side. What about the psychological trauma that escapees from North Korea experience? Talk us through that. Many of them will never recover, no matter what the therapy they have, you know, years of therapy, uh, that will not drive away the nightmares. They diminish in number. Uh, but their behavior, uh, sometimes very marked by what they've experienced. Some of them have spent years homeless. Others have spent years being trafficked as women and the years of living in fear of your life. Or even if it's not years of living in fear of your life and being sent back possibly to a camp, which is basically a concentration camp in North Korea, if you're caught, it might just be the fear that you experience when you decide to cross. When you cross at that point, if you cross the border, many do not know whether they are going to make that crossing. You are risking your life when you cross. So that kind of trauma... It, it influences them down, I think, to their their cells. Um, and you see the way they behave on a daily, if they feel threatened, their paranoia, the level of paranoia when they first arrive here. And I've seen, especially because of the North Korean man that I got out, seeing him change over the years of being completely paranoid, even thinking that uh, I might have stolen money from him. Um, to last year, when we met, he told me, you are my only family left. You're my family in Korea. I have seen that change in him from being a man who felt caged when he wasn't caged, paranoid, afraid, suspicious of everyone, to finally starting to understand the society he lives in, which comes with a sense of calm, but also a sense of great loneliness and great sadness because you finally understand why you'll never be like the rest of the South Koreans here. One thing I was um, stunned to, to learn a few years ago, although when you talk to people about it and think about it, it's really not that surprising, is that there are quite a number of defectors who end up in South Korea who after a few months or a few years regret coming over and even decide to go back and go go back north. Now, to, to many people, that will seem incomprehensible, but it's not, is it? They've lost family, their homeland, their language, their lives. And so, you know, we might see North Korea as this nation that is militarized, uh, demonized um, in much of the West. But in the end, for many of these people, it's home and it's family. It's their loved ones. Um, and that's what uh, the nostalgia grows over the years because to know that you can never go back is very different from living in another country for five to seven to eight years and to really understand that you can never see your homeland and your your family, your your childhood friends ever again. I mean, part of why North Koreans, uh, um, some of them may find that it's it may not just be nostalgia for for some of them, but also a recognition finally about how incredibly difficult it is for them to make a life in uh, South Korea. Um, that often drives people to uh, long for either a return uh, to North Korea, but also to try to start again somewhere else because they think it might be easier than this 
um, incredibly mega competitive society that South Korea is, where children are trained from age three, four, and five to study and succeed and to become um, the elite. But the elite today in South Korea, uh, to become the elite in South Korea today is really to become the ordinary person. Uh, it's that hard. So uh, they end up uh, re-immigrating uh, or... Um, trying to find their way to Canada or the UK or to the US. And today, right now, um, in places like Canada and the UK, they are rescreening all the North Koreans that they, uh, that they can to see if they are truly refugees or they are people who have come to these countries via South Korea. Yes, I once talked to a young woman who had defected about two years previously, and she was very impressive. She was doing a PhD at a national university in South Korea, highly educated and, and intelligent. And even she was seriously contemplating going back, one, because she missed her mother, she missed her family, but also because she just didn't like South Korea. She didn't like Seoul. She thought people were shallow, superficial, mean, money-grubbing, um, and that they placed value on all the wrong things. Uh, and it's almost like the, the, the feeling that, that, that people who, in any country, who move from the countryside, from a village, feel in, in the big city. And I think there's, there's an element of that. There's, she was certainly not proud of uh, or, or supportive of the of the Kim regime, far from it. She she saw through it with great clarity. But there's there's a sense which I think you sometimes even detect among South Koreans that North Korea is somehow a purer, almost a more authentic version of Koreanness. If you put aside the the horrible oppression, which of course you can't really do, but imaginatively you can try, then it, it, it's a simpler life. Uh, she, this woman said to me, you know, when, when I grew up, we knew all our neighbours, everyone knew one another. You would share things, you'd share food. We didn't have much, but we all mucked in together. You see that, I think, from time to time here. I remember a few years ago in Seoul, there was a, uh, there was a fad for, um, for North Korean mineral water. And I don't think North Korean mineral water is objectively all that good. And who knows what the, you know, the sanitation rules are and how they take it out of the ground. But it was somehow an, an essence of an older, purer form of this society, which in South Korea has, in some people's minds, become sullied by sophistication. Well, you've mentioned yourself, you know, 22 years ago, South Korea is a very different place than it is now. And even South Koreans have trouble understanding the changes that were so rapid in this country. Um, and uh, one of the common motifs today is nostalgia. There's nostalgia cafes, bars, LP record cafes, um, the movies, uh, on all levels, uh, interior decor. There's a looking back and a sense that we've lost something, but we're not quite sure what it is. And so North Koreans are coming, they're stepping into a society that is a hyper-capitalist society. Um, and for them, they're, they're having a reaction that in some ways is similar to the South Koreans, the older South Koreans that have an understanding of what our society was like before much of the dramatic changes have happened. And the irony is North Koreans are not the only ones that are desiring um, to leave South Korea at this point. Many South Koreans want to be and live elsewhere. They dream of immigrating elsewhere. But for North Koreans, without even any of the advantages that a South Korean might have had here, that the, the ability to create a sense of place here is that much more impossible. Okay, let's talk about another side of North Korean society, which is the the leadership, the regime, and the elite. Now, it goes without saying that Kim Jong-un's regime is indefensible in almost all ways. At the same time, whatever you think of him and the people around him, they're not, he's not a little rocket man, as Mr. Trump calls him. He's not a robot from outer space. He's a human being, and his failings, or his, his evil, if you want to use that not particularly useful word, are human failings. 
your novel, How I Became a North Korean, one of the things that interested me is that the one of the three characters is uh, is a young man who comes from the the North Korean elite, and he is in many ways the most sympathetic character in the book, despite his his privileged background. Was that a conscious decision? Ah, uh, yes. My character Yongju is um, inspired by a North Korean uh, man, uh, a defector that I knew who was very well-educated, literary, soft-spoken, sensitive, and had lost everything and was now building a new life, lost his loved ones, lost his family, and was now building a life alone in South Korea. And uh, much of the sadness was seen in his silences. And uh, I was really haunted by that because... What happened? I was really wondering what happens to a man who is forced to leave um, his country, not out of choice, but because of the political situation surrounding his family. And what happens to him when he loses everything? How do you survive when you are not a man equipped? You weren't. You weren't brought up on the streets. You weren't um, working at, on a farm. You weren't uh, a trader. You were a student. How do you survive uh, being a, a, a hunted person in China? How do you find a way to cross when you all you have is yourself and your intelligence? Um, and so his unspoken story was the one that inspired my character. And I also think that uh, many people, including South Koreans, often assume that North Koreans are uneducated and are brainwashed and are much less resourceful than they actually are. And I've seen North Koreans who, who are from Pyongyang immediately in their first, the first line of their introduction, they'll say to me, I'm not like the other North Koreans because they have seen and been, you know, experienced all the stereotypes everywhere they go. My experience has been that you know, from the North Koreans that grow up kind of cursing and shouting things at me if I'm in front of them um, in a kind of good-natured way, but, you know, aggressive in a way, to other North Koreans who are like my character, Yongju, who are the kind of person who is a poet at heart and has been forced into uh, circumstances not out of their own choosing, um, I wanted to write that story too. Do you think we should feel sorry for the North Korean elite? I feel sympathy for every North Korean uh, that is not of the Kim family uh, because they did not choose the country that they lived in and they certainly did not get to choose their government. The elite have great privileges, yes, but those privileges come with uh, greater danger than most North Koreans. They are the most watched. They are also, uh, their family members are held hostage every time they have to go on business trips or they're posted overseas. Everything they say or do or not say or do can and will be used against them. So in some sense, the elite live in the greatest fear. And some of the people who have more freedom to speak or be a little bit brasher tend to be people in the provinces, in the countryside, who are who are in some ways are seen as expendable and not important to the government. I, I think that's right. I think also there's there's a problem for the North Korean elite. It's remarkable in some ways that no one in the North Korean elite has realized and acted on the realization that, that North Korea is is on a hiding to nothing, that this, this system is doomed, it's not working. The problem is that even if you do have the education and the information to reach those conclusions, and there are many people who do, what do you do with, with that information? Someone said to me something interesting, I, I thought. He made a comparison with, uh, with, with the Arab Spring, say in a, a country like Egypt, when Mubarak was overthrown. Now, if you were a... Um, if if you were Mubarak or one of the people around him, then clearly, you know, your life was going to change drastically when he was overthrown. But for people below that, the, the, the kind of the, the colonel level uh, to, to sort of senior civil servants, um, if the president of Egypt gets overthrown, then your life will probably go on much as it did before. Uh, you know, there may be a period of uncertainty, but eventually things will 
the harmony will reassert itself and you will be back in some kind of role. In North Korea, that, that's not the case. No one can have that guarantee. Any change at the top will bring profound change for the whole upper echelon of society. And it might not just be a matter of, of losing your job. It might not be a matter of just you yourself being imprisoned or executed. You could see your whole family uh, and, and everyone you know meeting a dreadful fate. So it's very difficult for those people, even if they are, uh, even if they have the right idea and want to do the right thing, actually to put that into practice. Yes, I mean, the idea of an individual decision um, or an individual life is kind of a misnomer in a society like that because your decision affects your entire family. There are rumors that there have been several attempts at coup d'etats. Um, clearly, they didn't get uh, as far as they wanted. Um, and we have an elite class uh, that has uh, over 30% of the, the top, uh, you know, regime has disappeared and been executed um, uh, in the last few years. So any attempt or gesture at creating some kind of a movement really doesn't seem to have much uh, momentum in a society uh, that tightly controlled. Do you think we should feel sorry for Kim Jong-un? That's a very interesting question. It's difficult, isn't it? I, I tend to think that it's not the right question. The question is, not do you feel sorry for him, but if you were him, what would you do? G given the reality he faces with a huge hostile army on his south flank, an indifferent China, an indifferent to hostile China on the north flank, with no natural resources really, uh, with a large population to feed. Uh, I think that acquiring nuclear weapons is really rather a sensible thing to do. He looks around the world, he looks at what happened to Gaddafi, he doesn't want to go the same way. And he finds, as he develops his missiles and his nuclear weapons, that he is the centre of the tension and that everyone is reacting to him. He is setting the agenda uh, in this small, impoverished little country. Um, there is a, a, a logic, even a wisdom, to what he's doing. And I often think that the simplest thing that one can do to understand North Korea better is to try and put yourself in Kim Jong-un's shoes. Nuclear arms has become their answer, like like many countries, um, to uh, protecting their sovereignty. Um, they look to Iran as an example, and they certainly look to Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein uh, when they agreed to a kind of disarmament as another example of what they don't want to become. And when you have a, an American president um, and a cabinet publicly making inflammatory statements that seem to suggest their intent on removing you from power, the reaction will be to empower themselves. And and the, the missile has become their singular answer, and they will sacrifice their entire population if they need to in order to be successful. You mentioned the black grid of their map. Well, all that electricity, all their natural resources are focused on their nuclear program. It is not going to the people. I mean, in the in the winter that is much colder than what we have in South Korea, and our cold is bad enough, there's no heating in any of those buildings, including the public buildings from friends who have worked in North Korea. They can testify to that. Outside of the hotels for foreigners, um, there's no heating. They don't, they're not in, interested in the daily suffering of their people. They're interested in the survival of their nation. So it's disturbing when, um, you know, there are no easy answers, clearly. But when you push a government to look to nuclear arms as their only answer, I, I'm surprised that others are surprised. Well, we could keep on talking for much longer, but we should probably draw things to a close there. Chris, thank you very much indeed. It's been fascinating. Thank you. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. 
visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open.